You know, this book touches on so many hard things and real things. And there's a sense as we've walked through this together where, you know, Tim said it earlier, it's like, this is just life. And if we can't face life as it is, we won't ever find hope in the gospel because what the gospel is calling us to is more than this life, right? So we've been tracking along with Ecclesiastes. And if you're just catching up with us, let me unpack where we've kind of been. Ecclesiastes is this journey of a remarkable human being. It's this man, Solomon. Um, and we believe that the Ecclesiastes, if it wasn't exactly written by him by his exact hand, it was compiled from his life story and his wisdom. And that was probably what happened. It was later that it was compiled uh, to kind of track along with his story and his, his wisdom. And one of the things Solomon keeps saying as he's exploring life under the sun is he says, you know, at the end of the day, there's not much there. You know, at the end of the day, there's nothing that really lasts under the sun. There's nothing that has any long-term meaning or significance or substance. He keeps using this Hebrew word that we translate various ways into English, and in the translation we use, it's translated vanity. You know, in, in other translations, it's meaningless or vapor. That's actually what the word means. It's just a vapor. It's just a mist. It's here, and then it's gone. It doesn't really leave anything behind. And so Solomon, who's probably getting to the end of his life when he's you know, speaking these words of wisdom and somebody's writing it down, he's reflecting on all that he's done, and he's done it all, right? He's been the guy that had all the wealth, the guy that had all the power, the guy that had all the wisdom. God gave him the whole package. And I think one of the reasons God allowed him to have all that, even though he misused a lot of it, I think one of the reasons God allowed him to have all that is so we could have the book that we hold on our hands this morning, this book of Ecclesiastes. And we've talked about Ecclesiastes as sort of like how an artist uses negative space in art. You know, if you think about a work of art, there's a lot on the canvas that they don't necessarily want to draw your attention to. It's just negative space. They're trying to draw your eye to one focal point. Ecclesiastes, within the 66 books of our biblical canon, is a little bit like the negative space. You know, the author keeps saying, there's no life in wealth. There's no life in pleasure. There's no life in fame. Don't look here. Don't look here. Don't look here. Where are we left to look? That's where the book is pointing us. And so this morning, we come to another very interesting place. It's just essentially saying, look, there, there's more vanity. There's more futility. There's more places that you will not find life, even though you think you will. And it's unpacking those for us. Big thanks to Bill Wellens, who was here last week and taught a really helpful, interesting, and applicable message about power and government and how we are to live under authority. If you missed that, go back and, and download it. Go back and listen to the podcast. It was tremendous work. He talked about there's a temporal kingdom that we live in now and there's an eternal kingdom. And he contrasted the two. And as I listened to it, my heart was just sort of just bursting with joy about the eternal kingdom that we're going to. Now, Solomon did not have clarity on the eternal kingdom. In his place in history, God had not revealed yet exactly how the plan of redemption was going to come to pass. So he keeps encountering this wall of, of death. And from Solomon's perspective, he can't see over, over death. He can't see around death. He can't see under death. And so because of that, he keeps coming to the same conclusion. It's all a vapor. There's nothing that transcends. Now, this morning, we're going to get a hint of something beyond. 
And that's why I think this passage has a lot of hope in it. So there's a central theme in this morning's passage. And if you haven't opened your Bibles, let's go ahead and do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I'm going to jump around the passage. We'll cover the whole thing. But I want to do it out of order because I think it's more helpful and easy to follow if I group it thematically. So we're going to start with verse 14. And I'm going to read this verse. Um, We'll put it on the screen if we're able. We're having some screen problems this morning. So it may or may not be able to come up there, which is fine either way. But but look at verse 14 with me. And then after I read it, I want you to see if you can answer what the theme of this morning's text is. So Ecclesiastes 8 verse 14. There is a futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. Fill in the blank. Here's the theme of this passage. Life just isn't You got it. You got it. Life just isn't fair. Y'all all all knew it. The word wasn't even used, but you kind of get this idea. There's something that all of us know about life. It isn't fair. In fact, it starts really early. My wife Jody is in India on a mission trip this week, so I've been Mr. Mom and Mr. Dad and Mr. Pastor and Mr. You know, whatever this week. And, and one of the things that we keep hearing around our house a lot, and this is just a normal part of growing up. My girls are in this room, so I'm going to be careful how I talk about this, is we hear this phrase, that's not fair. And they weren't even paying attention. I got your attention now. I hear that in my house a lot. That's not fair. It's like they get a cookie and they're excited about the cookie until big sister gets a bigger cookie and then that's the word out of their mouth. That's not fair. That's not fair. And then we as parents, we have this incredibly wonderful answer that we all give when our kids say, that's not fair. We reply with, yeah, that's not a great answer. Life's not fair. You know, the kid's like, what do I do with that? You know, it's not helpful, you know? And what Solomon is saying here is life's not fair. There is a futility under the earth. And so the answer we give our kids is the right answer. But boy, it's a frustrating one, isn't it? Life's just not fair. Now, we have this instinct of fairness in us, and it starts when you're like four years old. Where does that come from? I think it comes from two places. There's a positive and a negative. Okay, let's let's talk about the, the good news and then the bad news. The positive is this. You are made in the image of God. And in Genesis 1 and 2, it talks about God making mankind so that we could rule under his authority and cover the earth with the, the, the just, right governance of God ruling underneath him. But we were designed to be rulers. We were designed to be judges in a sense. We were designed to have an instinct for justice, an instinct for fairness, because God is a God of justice. Now, the bad news is, at the fall of mankind, when sin entered the world, our image of God became deformed. It became marred. It became twisted. So we still have, you know, certainly clear vestiges of of being made in God's image. That's still true. But we're also twisted now in a self-oriented way. Luther called it the incurvature of the soul or the soul curved in on itself in selfishness. So what I believe was put in us as part of the image of God for justice now becomes all about, well, she got more than I did. He got more than I did. It's not fair. Life's not fair. You see kind of the selfish orientation that we often take this. But there's still part of us that sees injustice in the world. And even if it doesn't affect us at all, it still bothers us. Where does that come from? Where does that universal longing for justice come from? I think it's part of being made in the image of God. It's this, it's this part of us that, that's still made in that image, even though it's also twisted somewhat selfishly. Now, um, life does not work the way it should. And whether you believe in Jesus or not, you just know that. 
All right, just listen to this list. Guilty people should not prosper while innocent people suffer. You feel that when you come across it. Vulnerable people should not get taken advantage of by those who know better. Meaningful relationships that mean something to you, that are important, they should not fall apart. And, and so when they do, and you know, we've all had relationships that meant something to us that have fallen apart. When they do, you feel like something there is just not right. Something there is not right. Uh, a mom of, uh, of, of kids shouldn't get cancer, should she? <laughs> Children shouldn't die before their parents. All right? Um, young women and girls should not be trafficked around the world. I mean, we, we could go on and on and on. There's this injustice that prevails over the earth. And we're insulated enough from it, most of us, in uh, Williamson County, Tennessee, that it's not actually on our minds that much until something enters our world. Or sometimes all it takes is just, I was going to say turn on the news. Nobody turns on the news anymore, you know. Or fire up your device or whatever it is and look through the news. So this verse, what Solomon is saying, life's just not fair, is incredibly relevant and practical for us. We're like nodding our heads. He's right. There's a futility under the sun that sometimes the wicked get what the innocent deserve and the innocent get what the wicked deserve. Ecclesiastes, in this passage in particular, is going to help us see that the unfairness of life is something we have to come to grips with. We have to come to terms with. We have to know what to do with it. Because if we don't deal with it, it will over time create a bitterness in us, maybe a hardness of heart or a callousness. It could even create a crisis of faith when something comes along in your life that's terribly unjust, terribly tragic, terribly unfair. Where is God? Where is the just one in a world of injustice? These are the questions that Solomon is asking. So we have to follow him down the rabbit hole so that we can experience joy and hope in the midst of an unfair world under the sun. That's where the text is going. All right. Let's look now at verse 11. So verse 14 is kind of the theme verse. Now let's look back at verse 11. And and here's what he's going to do in verse 11. He's going to talk about one of the reasons why there's so much injustice and so much unfairness in the world. Look at it in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. That's pretty profound. It speaks to our justice system. When justice is not carried out rightly and swiftly, evil is just uncontained. Okay, but let's move beyond government. Let's move beyond justice systems. Let's talk about cosmic justice. Let's talk about divine justice. I think what he's actually saying, in a sense, is he's saying the depraved condition of the human heart is such that without the threat of consequences, mankind tends toward incredible sin. Mankind tends toward depravity. Mankind tends toward evil. You know, anybody ever read Lord of the, Fro- Lord of the Flies? You know, it's just like you just put human beings on their own devices without the threat of, of, of justice, without the threat of consequences, and mankind as a whole is going to tend toward this way. Now, this is a moment where we have to start seeing that the problem is not just out there, okay? The problem is not just, you know, on that island with the Lord of the Flied kids. The, the problem is not just in, in, in the, the governments of the world that are corrupt or, you know, these places that, that we would see in our own lives out there that are corrupt. The, the problem is in here problem is in here you see if we think we can get away with a sinful selfish act without the threat of consequences without anybody knowing without any accountability more often than not we will 
especially if we don't think anybody's going to be hurt by it. I'm, I'm going to make the selfish choice more often than not. Now, you know, as believers in Christ, we have the Spirit of God that puts a check in our heart and the Spirit of God that helps us, right? And, and that's not the point of today's text, but we'll go there just a bit toward the end. But what I think Solomon is kind of getting after here is he's saying we're depraved in our hearts, so without this, this threat of justice, so where is God? Like, where is the threat of justice? I think this is where Solomon is going. Why doesn't God shut down the evil in our world by punishing the evildoers? And I think where he's going is he's saying there often seems to be almost no correlation between what people get and what they deserve in life under the sun. So is there really any significant reason, significant motivation to do the right thing? Interesting dilemma. Now, there is a hint of an answer to this dilemma in the next couple of verses. I want to save those for the end because I first want to go to the end of the text where he's going to keep digging in into some hard questions. And the next hard question he's going to ask is, why does God allow all of this? What's God's answer to this? Can we even know the answer of God? So look at verse 16, chapter 8, verse 16. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night. Pause there for a minute. That doesn't mean don't ever go to sleep, okay? I did some digging on that because I'll make surely that's not what Solomon is saying. Other places in Ecclesiastes, he talks about rest as a wonderful thing, rest as a gift. I think we got a little bit of a translation issue going on. If you look at other translations, I think a better way to translate that little phrase is life has so much going on, it's such an enigma that it keeps you up day and night. The stress and the worry of the puzzle of life kind of keeps you up day and night. I think that's a better way to render that that phrase. But the Hebrew is complicated, so it's hard to say for sure. Look at verse 17. This is the key idea here. I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover discover. If you were here two weeks ago, Lloyd was here talking about a similar theme. Why does bad things happen to good people? And, you know, why do the good die young, etc.? And and ultimately, the conclusion that Lloyd saw in the the last chapter is the same conclusion in chapter 8, which is you can't know God's plan in all of this. You can even think you know. I love how he says that. He's like, you can even say, I know, but you don't actually know. And so, I see this happening all the time in my own heart and for others that in our church that I'm, I'm help walking through some tragedy and difficult times and we have this instinct to want to fill in the blank for why God would allow this. Like, okay, well maybe because this happened then that's the only way that this person was going to see the light and then this would happen. So it, what we're trying to do there and, and, I, and I'm not saying that's, that's a, a wrong track to go down. It, it's an instinct you really can't help. But what you're trying to do there is you're trying to rescue God a little bit, I think. You're trying to say, I I can't face the conclusion that God would allow this to happen unless there's some better end at the end of it. And by the way, that's right and true. Romans tells us God works in all things for good to them who know him and are called according to his purposes. So there is this better, higher purpose. But to say, oh, I've discovered the higher purpose. It was for this fruit over here that this death or this tragedy had to happen. Just don't be so sure. Hold it loosely. Hold it with humility is what Solomon is saying. Even if you say you know, you don't actually know. Now that is frustrating in a way. 
I mean, not in a way, it just is, right? The wisest man who ever lived, you know, at least the wisest man of his time for sure, is saying, look, I've got a little wisdom and I've chased this question down as far as I can take it. Follow me down the rabbit hole. At the end of the rabbit hole, there's a giant enigma. There's a giant question mark. There's a puzzle that can't be solved. There's a question that can't be answered. I did a little digging this week and uh, the why question, you know, why God did you let this happen? Why God is this going on? is asked an awful lot in Scripture. And did you know it's almost never answered? You know, probably the closest it comes is, is Paul. You know, Paul's having this conversation with God. Why, why are you allowing this thorn in my flesh? And, and, and what does God essentially say? So, so that I'll be glorified is essentially what he says. So that in your weakness, my power will be made perfect. You know, and so that was just enough of an answer for, for, for Saul or for Paul to, to kind of have some, some satisfaction there. But for the most part, think about the book of Job. It's like, why, 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 why? God never answers why. God just says, I am at the end of that book. He says, this is who I am. You can rest. This is who I am. You don't need to strive against me. You don't need to ask these questions. Now, the why question is, is in you. It's in me. It's an instinct that we have. God almost never answers it. He simply says this, and this is the key. I am in control, and you can trust me. That's the message of the Bible when it comes to the why. Why do bad things happen to good people? God's answer is going to be, I'm in control, and you can trust me. Here, I take this one step further and, and, and say this. Your unanswered questions are your greatest opportunity to trust. That's where you're going to lean in your faith. That's where you're going to grow in your faith. That's where you're going to learn to trust your Heavenly Father is in your unanswered questions with the things that you don't fully understand. He's given you enough right here. And He doesn't promise to answer all your questions, at least on this side of eternity. So maybe we can't get an answer to the why question always, and and certainly Solomon doesn't get an answer to why death, why bad things, why injustice. He doesn't get an answer to that in, in, in this text. But there is a question in the text that we can get an answer to, and it's a how question. It's the question of how should we live in an unjust, unfair place? How now shall we live? How do we live under the sun? If we're resigned to the fact that, that there's a lot of bad things that happen to good people and good things that happen to bad people and it doesn't seem like things even out the way that they really should, if that's life under the sun, and this is what Solomon is telling us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Ecclesiastes, how do we live in this? Because unless you're going to glory tonight or tomorrow, which by the way, you might be and don't know it yet, but unless you are, you still have some time to be living in this mess. How do we navigate? How do we live in it? And more importantly, how do we live with hope? How do we even live with joy? You're about to see there's actually joy in this text and there's hope in this text. Look at verse 15. Solomon's going to give two answers, one related to joy in the present. The other answer he's going to give is related to hope in the future. Okay, so here's how you live in this mess with joy in the present and hope for the future. Let's talk about joy first in verse 15. Here's his first answer. So, therefore, right, I commended pleasure. Interesting. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. 
and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. The, the word for pleasure, so I commended pleasure, could also be translated joy. So I commended joy. It's the exact same word. Now, at first glance, let's just be honest, this reads like, so numb the pain with as much hedonistic fun as you can cram into your days. Okay, that's how it reads at first. And if you've been tracking with us through the series, this is not the first time we've come upon this message of eat, drink, and be merry. I think it's the fourth or fifth time we've come across this. And um, scholars call it the carpe diem theme in Ecclesiastes, you know, seize the day. And so if you've been tracking with us, here's what you know. Solomon doesn't mean give yourself over to a life of pleasure. In fact, in chapter two, he told about his journey giving himself over to the life of pleasure, and it was a dead end. So if that's a that end, why would he keep coming back and saying, eat, drink, and be merry? Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. Because he's actually saying something much more nuanced. Here's where he's going with this. He's saying, open your eyes to the things that you do have right in front of you. They are gifts from God, and enjoy those. The word enjoy literally means find joy. Like, like get joy out of those things that are gifts of God that are in your hands. So listen to this, men and women. You hold in your hands much more than pain and suffering. Wherever you are in life, you hold some other things as well. You hold in your hands much more than unfairness and injustice. You hold some other things as well. You have people around you that you care for. You know, friends, family, moms, dads, kids. You have experiences that bring you a lot of joy. We just got back from a great trip. Some of you got back from vacations this summer. Some of you are entering into a season now where you've got some experiences in life that are quite enjoyable. There are tastes all around you. I don't know what you're going to eat for lunch, but I bet it's going to be something you enjoy unless you're on some kind of crazy diet, you know, and good luck uh, with that. And and then there's beauty. Sorry, I didn't mean to discourage you. (laughs) There's beauty. Uh, Listen, were you up for the sunrise this morning? Okay, I probably was, but I was chasing three kids around the house and a a dog that went berserk because a neighbor dog got loose and it was a crazy morning. But there's going to be a sunset this evening. There's going to be another sunrise tomorrow if Jesus doesn't come back again. There's rivers and lakes and ponds and mountains and, and, and flowers and little blades of grass that are beautiful. There's beauty all around us, people, experiences, tastes, beauty. Yes, there are things about life that are bitter and confusing and unfair and unjust, and there are other things about life that are sweet, and you hold them both in your hands. So what Solomon is saying is open your eyes and see what's right here in front of you and what God has given you to enjoy, enjoy. Okay, that's the point of carpe diem. That's the point of seize the day. We've been using this phrase over and over again through this book because we want to drill it into your heads. Life is gift, not gain. It's a lot like what Tim said earlier when, when he said it's all grace. All is grace. Everything is grace. It's the same idea. Life is gift, Life is gift, not gain. All right, you can't take anything with you. What you hold in your hands now that is enjoyable and pleasurable, as long as it's in the context of something that's not disobedient to God, enjoy what you have. Enjoy what's in your hands. Receive it as a gift from God. So let me get as practical as I possibly can, okay? I, I like application. I like trying to take the, the learning from Scripture and, and putting it at a place where we can all apply it. And this is as practical as I can possibly get. If God has given you a bike, go ride it. 
If God has given you a steak, go eat it. If God has given you a kite, go fly it. If God has given you a dog, go walk it. If God has given you a cat, I have no idea what you do with that. But enjoy it. I hear some groans over here. Enjoy the cat, however you're meant to enjoy a cat. I just don't know how. If God has given you a spouse, go on a date. If God has given you a parent, go on a trip down memory lane. If God has given you a child, go play. If God has given you a family, go on a vacation. If God has given you a friend, go out for coffee. And if even God has given you nothing but yourself, you still have him. So enjoy what you have. Enjoy what you have. Receive life for what it is. Enjoy it for what it is. It's a gift of God. It's undeserved, which makes it unfair, but in the best possible way. You see, the unfairness of life cuts two ways. And Solomon is saying, don't get so caught up with all the negative unfairness that you miss the positive unfairness, the undeserved gifts that you have in your hands, and you all have them. We all have them. You may have less than you wish you did. All right? You may have less than you hope you will tomorrow. You may have less than what you did yesterday. But what you hold in your hand, receive it as a gift of God. That's the carpe diem message. That's the first answer to the question, how do we live in an unjust world? Let's go to the second answer. So we, we talked about the idea of joy in the present. Now let's shift to hope in the future. Look at verses 12 and 13. We're going to put these on the screen together because I want you to see them together. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Okay, now here's the context. Solomon has just declared that there's no justice on this earth, you know. In fact, if you really dig into the text, you kind of see a theme of like, even at the day of death, that you don't necessarily get what you deserve. Like, there'll be evil men that'll never be found out and they'll be celebrated and have a good burial, all right? And then there's gonna be righteous men and women and, and boys and girls who die young and maybe even obscure and, and are forgotten and no one even knows their name. So what do we do with all this? And in that context, he's saying something remarkable in verses 12 and 13. He's saying that somehow justice will win out in the end. Did you catch that? Things will be made right in the end. So it's like he's saying, there's no justice under the sun. And then he's saying, but somehow things are going to be made right. It won't go well for the evil man and it will go well for the man who fears God. How can you hold that, that the tension of those two things? The only way you can hold that tension is if there's something beyond the grave. The only way you can hold that tension is if there's something beyond life under the sun, if life under the sun is not the only life there is. Now, this is what's so significant about this book, guys. I've read this book now tons of times, and I've only found two places in the whole book that Solomon himself seems to express some kind of faith in a, in a good life after death. Okay, it, it's, it, 
this and one other passage. Now, the end of the book is going to go there, but that's the narrator inserting himself, not necessarily the voice of Solomon. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get to chapter 12. But right here is one of only two places where Solomon is essentially saying there's got to be something beyond the grave. Now, he's still fuzzy on this because God hadn't revealed it much. There hadn't been much prophecy yet about Messiah. Now, ironically, uh, Solomon's father, David, had some prophecies in the Psalms about Messiah, and you will not let my bones see decay, and there's this glimpse, this hint of something beyond the grave, but it wasn't fully developed theology at this point in time. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 22 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon himself says, who really knows what comes after death? So death is the great wall that keeps hemming Solomon in. He he can't see his way over it, around it, under it, as we already talked about. But in these two verses, it's as if he's turning his face directly at that frustrating, immovable wall of death and saying, I can't see it, but there's got to be something on the other side. There's got to be something on that other wall. It can't be all there is here. He's crying this out, I think, in in the faith that the Holy Spirit gave him in inspiration of this text. He's saying, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and even lengthens his life, I know it will be well for those who fear God in the end. And I know it won't be well for that sinner. There's got to be something on the other side. Now, There are actually two things. With the time I have remaining, I want to talk about the two things that are on the other side of the wall. Okay, two things on the other side of the wall of death. Solomon is hinting at them here. You and I know more than Solomon. Okay, we we know a lot more than Solomon because we have the New Testament. But let me just talk about what Solomon's getting after. There's two things on the other side of the wall of death. A reckoning and a restoration. A reckoning and a restoration. Straight here from verses 12 through 13. Let's start with the reckoning. Verse 13, although, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, pause there. Now look at verse 13. It will not be well for the evil man. Although he does evil a hundred times, even to lengthen his life. Now, here's what's going on. He's saying there's a reckoning beyond the grave. And at this point, he's pushing against the philosophy of the day, even sort of the theology of the day, which is long life equals God's favor, short life and illness and, you know, handicapped, etc. equals God's curse. Not true, Solomon is saying. He's saying there can be an evil man that can extend his life, lengthen his days. Don't assume a long life equals God's favor in this theology. That's what Solomon is pushing against. All right? He's actually saying God's favor is not measured by how long someone lives or how comfortable their life is. So wealthy people, you know, he's saying to the people in his day, don't just assume because you're old and wealthy that you have God's favor. But it's measured by another thing altogether. The fear of God. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, but not yet. He's saying there is going to be a final reckoning. There's going to be a final reckoning. Now, going hand in hand with the reckoning is the restoration. So on the other side of the wall of death, there's a reckoning and there's a restoration. Let's talk about the restoration. He says, still, I know that it will be well for those who fear God. Verse 12. It will be well. That's a beautiful Hebrew word. If you double-click on that word, you find that it's the word tov, T-O-V, usually translated good. It can also be translated uh, pleasant, beautiful, orderly, right, tov. 
One of its best-known uses is in Genesis chapter 1 when God's making everything that we see around us and he says, you know, he made this and he saw that it was good. He saw that it was tov. Same word. And this rhythm over and over. He, he made this and he saw that it was good. He saw that it was tov. And so and Solomon, in a sense, is sort of reaching back to this Hebrew concept of, of the creation that was good, the creation that was good, that was, that was tov. And he's saying, I know that someday things will once again be good. Someday things will be restored. Right? It's a wreck right now. All there was in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 was good, was tov. And he's saying, it will be tov for those who fear God. There's going to be a restoration. All will be restored to the state it was originally created in. Justice and freedom and righteousness will finally, once again, reign on the earth. Two things on the other side of the wall of death, a reckoning and a restoration. Now, we know more than Solomon did. We can go further than Solomon could at that point in time. In, in view of the whole scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, in, in whom does the reckoning of God and the restoration of God come together? You know this one. You know this one. In whom does the reckoning of God and the restoration of God come together? In the incarnation. In Jesus Christ. Specifically in the cross and in the empty tomb. In the cross you have a reckoning. In the empty tomb you have a restoration. In the person of Jesus, the God-man. Now, on the cross, Jesus took the guilt of the entire world, right? This is what our Bible teaches us. And it was laid on him. And it was so weighty and so heavy that the intimate relationship the father had with his son since before time began was severed at that moment. God turned his face away as we sing in the hymn. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? And he knew why. He, he shed drops of blood in the garden previously, the night before, because he knew this moment was coming. And he said, God, if there's any other way, remove this burden from me. It wasn't just a physical pain burden he was worried about. It was the spiritual separation that is the very definition of death. And then he says, but if it's your will, if this is the way it must be accomplished, then let it be. I will go to the cross. I will do it. He became, in that moment on the cross, in a sense, the one from Ecclesiastes 8 who did not fear God, the one for whom it would not be tov, the one it would not be well. It was not well for Jesus. He became, for us, the one who did not lengthen his days. In fact, he died young. He died in the prime of his life because he willingly drank the cup of the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Now let me just pause here and say for all of us that struggle with the terrible unfairness of life, and it's real, is it not? It's hard, is it not? That moment on the cross was the most unjust, unfair, upside-down moment in the history of creation. The one person who ever lived on this earth that actually was innocent was the one that took all the punishment. That's the most unjust, unfair moment. And who are the beneficiaries of that unfairness? Everyone who believes. It was the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. 
right? Our separation from the Father for his perfect relationship from the Father. There was an exchange that took place and we simply receive that through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're ever tempted to question God's love for allowing injustice and suffering, and if you're not now, you will be later or you have been in your past. You will. When you're tempted to question God's love for allowing injustice and suffering, don't forget that he did not choose to stay as a passive observer, but he entered the very vortex of the unfairness. He entered into it. He bore the weight of injustice on his back and trudged up a hill to pay for all of it. In that moment, y'all, there was a reckoning. A reckoning. And then on the third day after that, there was a restoration. That the physical process of decay that naturally started at the moment of Jesus' death was reversed. It's like the God the Father said, we're going to kick that thing in reverse gear and we're going to put the pedal on the metal. And Jesus' life was restored. There was a restoration. And so what Scripture teaches us, there's an order to the restoration. There's an order to the resurrection. First, Jesus. That's already happened. Then all of us who are in him through faith... That is yet to happen when Jesus returns. And then finally, Romans 8, the creation itself will be restored, will be made new. First Jesus, then us, then the creation. That's the order. And by the way, there will be a final reckoning and a final restoration. The evil one will be bound and locked away. Injustice and suffering and pain will be separated from the people of God. We see that in Revelation 21, 22 prophecy the broken feudal creation which solomon calls life under the sun will be remade in jesus he says behold i am making all things new i'm restoring all things the reckoning the restoration you see so there's a reckoning and restoration in jesus there'll be a final reckoning and a final restoration to come so that leaves us with the second answer to the key question Remember the key question? If life's not fair in both terrible and wonderful ways, by the way, if life's not fair, how should we live? Number one, joy in the present. Take the gifts God's given you, whatever it is, big or small, and enjoy them. Number two, number two, you must connect the fear of God to the gospel of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, we've, we've talked, Lloyd and I have, about the fear of God a lot in this series because it's a big theme and, and the whole book's going to close with this theme so we're going to come back to it. We've given you three concepts for the fear of God so far. This morning I want to add a fourth. Let's first review for the three. See if we can, we can put those on the screen if our screens are up and going. If not, there we go. Thank you. Here it is. Three things about the fear of God. A, holy, uh, sorry, a wholesome dread of displeasing God. A holy awe of God as he is revealed in the scripture, a humble awareness that to hear God is to obey God. What Solomon is saying is, to those who do those three things, to those who fear God, it will go well in the reckoning and the restoration. It will be good. To those who don't do those three things, it will not go well. It will not be good in the reckoning and the restoration. That's what Solomon is saying. Clear in the text? Clear in the text. Now we have just one problem. Who among us has done those three things as well as they possibly could? None. Who among us have done those three things perfectly? None. Who among us have feared God all of our lives from the time you're born until the time you die? None of us. So there's only two ways you can go. You can say, well, I haven't been perfect, but I've been better than most. Scripture never allows that loophole. 
There is no better than most in the entire Bible. I've read it, all right? It's not there. There's only one other place to go. The substitution, the exchange. Say, I've not feared God all my life. And I haven't, y'all. You haven't. But I know the one who did. I have faith and trust in the one who did. The only one who did. So here's the fourth thing. You have to understand about the fear of God if you're going to read the Bible as a Christian. Okay? Fourth thing about the fear of God is the fear of God is also a hope-filled faith in Jesus who died and rose to make all things new, starting with me, starting with you. And so I actually think how this can work is you start with the last one. Do you have a hope-filled faith in Jesus? From there, you can start to have a humble awareness that to hear God is to obey, a holy awe of God as he is revealed in the Scripture, and a wholesome dread of displeasing God. It has to start with Jesus Christ. It has to start with the gospel. Now, here's how you can navigate this life, men and women, that's terribly unfair. You have all these, these, these really negative, unfair things in your life going on. Okay? You do. You do. And you have over here, you've got a few really good, healthy, wonderful things like, you know, relationships and experiences and tastes and all these things. And, and like some of you are thinking, yeah, it kind of balances out a little bit. Some of you are like, are you kidding me? You know, chocolate has nothing on cancer. And you're right. Okay? Here's the thing that you can say. You can say, like Saul, like, like Paul, keep calling him Saul, in, in, in light of what is true about me over here, in light of the good news of, of, of the gospel, in light of the fact that in the end it will be well for me for eternity, in light of the fact that I get God, do these things over here compare to the glory of what is to come? These things are short, this thing's eternal. These things are hard, yes, but this over here is so glorious. It'll be, it'll be, Paul says, like the pains of childbirth compared to the glory of what is to come. So that's how you can walk in this. You say, I've got these hard things here, and I've got this one thing over here, and I'm going to lean in over here. I'm going to lean in on my faith. I'm going to lean in on the good news of Jesus. And this is how we're going to close our service. So let me pray, and then we're going to sing a song that's all about an opportunity to do just that. Our Father, we want to lean in this morning to the good news covered a lot of ground this morning. It's heavy, it's weighty, but there is joy and there is hope. So I pray for this body this morning as they're carrying the tension of living as agents of hope in a world that doesn't have a lot of hope, of living as agents of the future justice that is to come in a world that doesn't have a whole lot of justice right now, of living as agents of love in a world that is mostly selfish, of living as agents of new creation in a world that is still decaying and dying. Father, at this point, we must pray, would you send your son soon? Would he come soon? Would you send him to restore the brokenness and to what you've always designed it to be good? But we also have to acknowledge it's not up to us when he comes. And so we have a ways to wait, more than likely. We pray it soon, but we may have a ways to wait. And in that waiting, Father, we hold this tension Would you help us to lean into what is beautiful and true and good? May our minds think about those things. May our hope center on Jesus Christ, the one who is making all things new. And may we become agents of that message even as we live 
in life under the sun. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.